Your patient is a diabetic and considering a pancreas transplant. Or should they be considering instead an islet cell transplant? Which one is the better option? You are listening to ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to a special segment, Focus on Diabetes. I am your host, Dr. Mark Nolan Hill, Professor of Surgery at the Chicago Medical School, and with me today is Dr. David Sutherland, Professor and Head of the Division of Transplantation and Director of the Diabetes Institute for Immunology and Transplantation in the Department of Surgery at the University of Minnesota. Welcome, Dr. Sutherland. Hello. Nice to be here. Today we are discussing pancreas transplants and islet cell transplants. Dr. Sutherland, what exactly is the difference? Well, they're both designed to do the same thing, to actually provide the endogenous source of insulin that is missing in individuals with insulin-dependent type 1 diabetes mellitus, the beta cells. So a pancreas is what you call major surgery, but it provides the full beta cell mass in the islets of Langerhans, but it does have surgical complications. It's non-investigational and standard therapy. The islet transplantation is minimally invasive. It involves extracting the islets from the pancreas through a complex processing and then just injecting them as sort of a cell transplant. And they're usually injected into the portal vein embolized to the liver. And this can be done percutaneously by interventional radiologists, so that's much less surgery. The problem with the islet transplants is that the number of islets that you can extract in the pancreas is less than the total number there, so you get less beta cell mass. And it's somewhat more difficult to monitor for rejection because we can't use the other parts of the pancreas, like the exocrine pancreas, for monitoring for rejection. And it also is investigational, so patients usually have to fit prescribed protocols that are FDA-approved, so not as many patients would be eligible for an islet transplant. So when you pose the question as if someone is considering a pancreas or an islet transplantation, which is the one to do, not everyone would have the choice. For some individuals, the only option would be either nothing or a pancreas transplant. But for those who would meet the protocol design, yes, then an islet should be considered because everybody would like to have minimally invasive surgery as opposed to a major operation. Dr. Sutherland, could you walk us through a pancreas transplant? Okay, so a pancreas transplant is what we call in that family of solid organ transplants. So it would be akin to a kidney transplant or a liver transplant or a lung or a heart transplant. Those are the common organs that are transplanted or maybe an intestinal transplant, which is less common, but done. And it's often combined with a kidney transplant because, as you know, diabetes is one of the leading causes of kidney failure. And indeed, about 30% of individuals with type 1 diabetes, which is really insulin-dependent juvenile onset diabetes mellitus, so it's not always is juvenile onset, but frequently is, about 30% of individuals with type 1 diabetes will develop kidney failure after about 20 years of diabetes and either have to get a kidney transplant or go on dialysis. And so a kidney transplant is much preferable to going on dialysis. And once you have a kidney transplant, you are taking anti-rejection drugs. So to take full advantage of being on immunosuppression, most patients who get a kidney transplant would also do a pancreas transplant so they can become insulin independent as well as dialysis-free. And about 80% of the patients who undergo a pancreas transplant are in that category. They either have a simultaneous kidney or they've had a previous kidney. If it's a previous kidney, it's usually because they had it from a living donor. If it's a simultaneous pancreas and kidney transplant, it's usually because they didn't have a living donor and they waited until a deceased donor organs became available, and then they had both from the same donor. 
there also are some individuals who get half a pancreas from a living donor, just like you can get one kidney from a living donor, and you can get a lobe of a liver from a living donor or part of a lung from a living donor. However, there's been about 30,000 pancreas transplants done in the world since the first one was done in 1966. The majority of these have been done since the mid-1980s. And of those, uh, only about 150 have been from living donors. So the vast majority have come from deceased donors. And so there's potential to increase it with living donors. But indeed, most of them are from deceased donors. But the option of a living donor is still there, and people should be aware of it. Now, if you don't need a kidney transplant, say you, you have diabetes and you're what you call brittle diabetes, uh, but your kidneys are fine, but you're just up and down, and you might have what's called hypoglycemic unawareness, where you where if you get an insulin reaction and your blood sugar goes low, you may not even tell it until you drive the car off the road. And so people die of hypoglycemic unawareness, or their spouses can get no sleep because their spouses have to set the alarm to check the blood sugars during the night because the one with diabetes won't wake up when they have a low blood sugar and might even get a seizure. And really, probably about 10 to 15% of diabetics actually have this condition of hypoglycemic unawareness and are brittle. Those are candidates, whether or not they've had a kidney transplant, because for them, immunosuppression or the anti-rejection drugs is less of a burden than diabetes. Well, for individuals that are diabetes and it's relatively easy to manage, and they can take their insulin injections, they go to work, they don't get low blood sugars, and they really carry on a daily life, for them, the risks of the surgery, the fact they have to take anti-rejection drugs may not be justified in the face of doing well. So we estimate that probably about 40 to 45 percent of diabetic patients over a lifetime would be eligible candidates. Either, either they've had or need a kidney transplant or they've got hypoglycemic unawareness or brittleness that would justify doing a pancreas transplant. And as I mentioned, the first one was done nearly 40 years ago. Actually, it was done in 1966 at the University of Minnesota Hospital. And at our hospital, we've now done over 2,000. And there's been about 30,000 done in the world. So it's readily applied. Last year, there was about 1,800 pancreas transplants done in the United States. And that's about the number that it's been at for the last 10 years because of the shortage of deceased donors. There's only about 6,000 deceased donors every year in the United States for all organs. And of those, only about half are suitable for a pancreas, and we use about two-thirds of those because logistically it's hard to use the others. So there is room for actually increasing the number. If we can procure organs more efficiently, then we could probably increase by about a third the number of pancreas transplants that are done. Now, some of those pancreases are used for isla transplants, which Dr. Herring will discuss. And our goal is to eventually do everyone with an isla transplant and have that be as successful as a pancreas transplant. If you have just joined us, you are listening to a special segment, Focus on Diabetes, on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Mark Nolan-Hill, professor of surgery at the Chicago Medical School, and we are speaking with Dr. David Sutherland, professor and head of the Division of Transplantation and director of the Diabetes Institute for Immunology and Transplantation in the Department of Surgery at the University of Minnesota. Today we are discussing pancreas and islet cell transplantation. Dr. Sutherland, how complex is the actual surgery for pancreatic transplant? Well, you know, it's actually really not much more complex than many general surgery operations. For example, doing a pancreatectomy, say somebody has pancreatic cancer and you do what's called a Whipple operation where you take out that part of the pancreas, like the head of the pancreas with a tumor, that's actually probably even 
somewhat more complex than doing a pancreas transplant for the recipient. Of course, we have to take out the organ and the donor, so the donor operation may be nearly as complex as the Whipple operation. But it's no more complex than actually the other organs we do, a heart, lung, liver. They're all complex surgeries, but they're not unduly so. So we make an incision in the abdomen. We isolate the blood vessels that go to the leg, what are called the iliac artery and vein. We don't remove the recipient's own pancreas. And when we do a kidney transplant, we don't remove their own kidneys. And we simply take the blood vessels that go to the pancreas and sew them to the iliac artery and vein, the blood vessels that go to the leg. We just put them end to side. It's just like the plumber puts a pipe end on to another pipe or an end to side. And so we don't even interrupt the blood supply to the legs except temporarily to do the surgery. With a pancreas transplant, we do have to connect the pancreatic duct to either the patient's own intestine or we can drain it into the bladder. So the secretions that actually aren't involved in making insulin but make enzymes to digest food can then be secreted into the intestine or the bladder. And usually we leave a part of the intestine of the donor attached to the pancreas, what's called the duodenum, the first portion of the intestine where the pancreatic duct drains into. And we use that to make a connection to either the intestine or the bladder. So there's really kind of three connections that are made, an artery, a vein, and then the pancreatic duct or the intestine attached to the um, pancreas. Uh, And then we close the patient and we're done. What about tissue typing? Is that a problem? Blood typing, for example, if we're looking at if someone is blood type O, then they want a pancreas or any organ from a blood type O donor because blood type A is not compatible for O. But say you're blood type AB, then you can get a organ from anybody because A can go into AB, B can go to AB, and O can go into AB. And then you have A's for A's and B's for B's. So we do match it. Now, now as far as doing other types of tissue typing, what is called HLA typing or human leukocyte antigen typing, we find actually for simultaneous kidney pancreas transplants, there's very little impact of matching. And that's true for all organs now. Even if we look at heart, lung, and kidneys and liver transplants, there's only about a 5 to 10% benefit of a really a good match over a rather poor match because our anti-rejection drugs are good enough not to overcome matching. Now, the exception is a pancreas transplant alone. When we do a pancreas with a kidney, then it doesn't matter so much. But when we do a pancreas alone, then we try to get what we call as a good match. So patients will wait until we get that donor that comes along with a good match. But there aren't so many patients waiting for a pancreas alone. The waiting times are relatively short, even trying to get a good match. And so that's not really a problem. We just wait till we get what we consider a reasonably good match, and then we do it. So it's really very similar to other organs. Matching can make a difference, but it's it's actually relatively minor compared to what it was 20 years ago when we did have as good anti-rejection drugs as we have now. Is there a significant difference between using a live donor versus a deceased pancreas? Well, there's not a lot of difference in outcomes in that a half a pancreas is enough. It can produce enough insulin. So it's, that's like when we do a Whipple operation for cancer of the pancreas. Most of the patients don't become diabetic because that part of the pancreas we leave in can then supply enough insulin. And it's like when we take a kidney out of a living donor to transplant to their brother, for example, the donor does perfectly fine with one kidney because we've tested people to know that they have two good kidneys and one is good enough. So nature has built up certain reserve into all organs. It's probably fight or flee. I mean, like, if you think about the animal world and if a bear gouges a deer and slashes out one kidney, if the deer gets away, it can still survive in the other kidney. So nature has given us redundancy to get through life. Not that we will hope to encounter a bear to flash out our kidney, but uh, <laughs> uh, but you might get in a car accident and lose a kidney, or you might think about the soldiers in wars. Some of them lose kidneys. In fact, 
this is an interesting story. One of the reasons we knew we could do living donor kidney transplants even beginning in the 1950s was that the Army had studied veterans from World War I that had lost a kidney fighting in World War I. And what they found is that those young men, over time, had the same lifespan as those that had two kidneys in the general population. And that was knowledge that was available to surgeons in the 1950s. And they said, well, look, we can do this. There can't be that much risk. And indeed, they were right. And so if we take out half a pancreas from someone, we test the donor. We make sure that a half a pancreas is enough for the donor and a half a pancreas is enough for the recipient. And we can look at insulin production and glucose values in the donors during various stimuli to make that determination. I want to thank Dr. David Sutherland, who has been our guest. We have been discussing pancreas and islet cell transplantation. I'm Dr. Mark Nolan-Hill, and you have been listening to a special segment Focus on Diabetes on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, please send your email to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.